Good morning. Today's scripture reading will be from Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9, and Acts 17, 24 to 28. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind, he set up boundaries for the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted inheritance. Over to Acts. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Amen. Thank you so much, Joanna. I tell you last night was interesting. I couldn't get to sleep. So that tells me God is working in a special way. You have a wonderful pastor. He's a good friend of mine, in fact. Well, would you look at there? Dixie, bless you. My member. I think, I believe I baptized you, didn't I? Yes, indeed. You brought joy to my life. It's good to see you. Pastor Honus, not only is a friend of mine, but a a mentor. I was his in the graduating class with his younger sister, Carrie, and then uh, while I was an undergrad at La Sierra, he was a grad student there, and it's always an honor and a privilege uh, when he invites me to share his pulpit, and our blessings and prayers go with him today. Let me start. I'm not a singer, uh, but I am not embarrassed to sing either. So I'm going to sing for you. Some want the crown, but they won't bear their cross. But it takes your everything to serve the Lord. Some want bright mansions, but they won't pay the cost. But it takes your everything to serve the Lord. It takes your hands and your head and your heart It takes your all, it takes a full surrender to serve the Lord. It takes your time and your means and your prayers lest you fall. It takes everything to serve the Lord. Some want to be seen, but they don't want to be clean. But it takes your everything to serve the Lord. Some want the fame while they live lives full of shame, but it takes your everything to serve the Lord. It takes your hands and your head and your heart. It takes your all. It takes a full surrender to serve the Lord. It takes your time and your means and your prayers lest you fall. 
It takes everything. It takes everything. It takes everything to serve the Lord. I've learned from many years as a pastor the importance of context for preaching. In fact, the preaching class I teach at La Sierra University, I try to teach my students that there is no generic sermon. Sermons take place in multiple overlapping and interacting contexts. And you know that, Pastor Dent. It's good to see you also. This morning, each one of you comes with a different physical, intellectual, emotional, and behavioral context. This is why pastors of congregations rightfully earn the responsibility and privilege of preaching to the people they shepherd. I often begin sermons at my own congregation with the request that they would love me enough to let me be wrong when I have hard messages to bring. So I come with humility this morning. There's much about your context personally and as a congregation for which I'm unaware. But I want to offer this proposition to begin the sermon. Let us try to put aside our personal context, our individual context, as best we can to consider a more far-reaching context, a global context. Nearly two decades ago, I had a conversation that resulted in a major paradigm shift in my thinking. One Sabbath afternoon during lunch, I was sharing what I thought was a standard, ordinary Adventist interpretation of Daniel's vision, that great metallic, multi-metallic image in chapter 2. And when I share this I found out that my understanding of the standard, ordinary Adventist interpretation was aptly described as petty, parochial, and myopic. I explained how the head of gold represents the kingdom of Babylon, the breast and arms of silver represents the kingdom of Persia, the belly and thighs of brass represent the kingdom of Greece. The legs of iron represent the kingdom of Rome. And the feet of iron mixed with clay represent the divided Roman Empire. The vision climaxes with the stone representing the return of Christ, which would destroy those kingdoms, the fragmented Roman Empire. To my surprise, a friend raised a Seventh-day Adventist in Nigeria, responded with these words, nonsense. And he replied that any oracle worthy to be named a prophecy, a prophecy that depicts an event as cataclysmic as the return of Christ, and yet at the same time, ignores the significance of West Africa, Far East Asia, the Western Hemisphere, and the extreme borders of the civilized world is petty, 
parochial, and myopic. That Sabbath afternoon chat taught me two lessons about growing up an American Adventist. First, I learned that end-time biblical scenarios should rightfully be expected to have a global scope. Second, I learned that my American perspective gave me a selective emphasis on what the global scenario would ultimately look like. It is the case that parochial perspectives, even when they are not petty and myopic, can negatively shape our global vision. I want to suggest this morning that this is the case so often. Furthermore, that this has always been the case. This is not simply a contemporary or modern problem. It was the case for Bible writers. Their perspective led them to select global scenarios that were petty, parochial, and myopic. Take, for example, the global scenario mentioned in the scripture reading this morning, the hymn of Moses in Deuteronomy that was so wonderfully read. When the Most High apportioned the nations, when he divided humankind, he fixed the boundaries of the peoples according to the number, now I know that Joanna's version said, of the sons of Israel. But the better versions read according to the number of the gods. The Lord's own portion was his people. Jacob, his allotted share. So in this hymn, God is pictured only as the most high among many deities. Moreover, this song pictures a divided human family each with fixed boundaries and limits to human community. Petty, parochial, myopic. Generations later, the evangelist Luke alludes to this passage from Deuteronomy. In his report of Paul's address to the Athenians, Luke's comment shows that even under the age of the gospel, major steps were made on the theological picture But, regretfully, only minor steps were made on the anthropological picture. Look what Luke writes in Acts chapter 17, 26. From one ancestor, he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth. He allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him though indeed he is not far from each one of us. So in this passage, we see the great monotheistic tradition in full force. Every person is in search for the one God, not for the most high God among many. This one God is the creator of all who inhabit the earth. This one God is the author of history, giving purpose to our lives. This one God is not far from any one of us. Yet in the midst of Luke's 
great celestial picture of God, the global picture of humankind remains problematic because God has allotted the boundaries of the places where they would live. This picture maintains those same geographical boundaries to human community that the author of the hymn in Deuteronomy envisions. Petty, parochial, myopic. The contemporary world, and we've learned that this week in full force, the contemporary world with its advance in technology has given us the ability to break those spatial boundaries that divide humankind. In matters of commerce, travel, communication, and more, we've come to understand that we are truly now a global village. The question we face today is whether our social science can catch up to our physical science, whether our theology can catch up to our technology, whether our ethics can catch up to our ethnographies. The question today is not globalization or no globalization, but what kind of globalization will it be? Will it be a globalization with the principles of the kingdom of God or a U.S.-led imperial or corporate globalization? If globalization is inescapable, then in all fairness, an Adventist vision for the global community should put its cards on the table. Adventists ought to be candid about where we place our emphasis when constructing a vision for the global community, a vision, hopefully, that is not petty, parochial, and myopic. When sketching out a biblically informed Adventist vision for global community, what scriptural themes ought we to deliberately emphasize? I say best practices would emphasize those themes that the Bible writers themselves emphasized. So first, in terms of how we preach the gospel, we ought to emphasize the social dimensions of the gospel over against the personal dimensions of the gospel. Walter Rauschenbusch, in his book, Christianity and the Social Crisis, points out that among the gospel writers, three-fourths of the evangelists, the synoptic writers, claim that Jesus' message of good news was the kingdom of God has come. While one-fourth, namely John, said Jesus' message of good news is the promise of eternal life. Rauschenbusch notes, the promise of eternal life speaks to the personal dimensions of the gospel. How do I survive the death of this body? And to hear that life is eternal and present and that I have already passed from death into life is good news. The kingdom of God message, however, highlights the social dimensions of the gospel. How do I get along with people in kingdom life? If the biblical record emphasizes three-fourths of the time 
the social dimension of the gospel, why then should our message have a different emphasis today? Why should we always be talking about a personal relationship with Jesus? Why should we be so concerned about saving souls when we damn bodies? When we look at the famous account in Jesus' ministry where he gives his inaugural address at the synagogue in Nazareth, we find a beautiful symbolic expression of how social justice ministry is a ministry of grace. Think about it. Jesus comes into the synagogue and he reads from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. He reads and he comments on his inspiration by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of the Lord has anointed me. He reads and he comments on his anointing. He reads and he comments on his mission to the poor. He has sent me to preach the gospel to the poor. He reads and he comments on his mission to the brokenhearted. He reads and he comments on his ministry to the captives and the prisoners. He reads and he comments on his coming as being the promised jubilee year. But notice... Jesus does not finish the text. He does not read, nor does he comment on the rest of the verse in Isaiah 61-2. He does not proclaim the day of the Lord's vengeance. Why not? I believe it's because Jesus knows that a ministry of social justice is one that holds at bay the vengeance of God. Jesus knows that a ministry to the needs of the poor, the oppressed, the brokenhearted, captives, and prisoners is a ministry of grace. And Jesus knows that this is the picture of good news that the evangelist wants us to get. Social justice is a ministry of grace. Not only in terms of how we preach the gospel are we called to lay our cards on the table. In addition, we are called to lay them on the table in terms of how we interpret our religious heritage as Adventists. We ought to emphasize the prophetic vision of our religious tradition over against the apocalyptic vision of our religious tradition. Adventism has for too long conflated, confused, reduced the prophetic and the apocalyptic visions. I think we have reached a point where we can no longer flirt with this approach. We must be purposeful about which vision captures the heart of our mission to the world. The prophet's role was to speak out against injustice in the prophet's own day and time. To speak out against oppression and corruption and apostasy. Cornel West puts it this way, to prophesy is not to predict an outcome, but rather to identify concrete evils. To prophesy deliverance is not to call for some otherworldly paradise, but rather to generate enough faith, hope, and love to sustain the human possibilities of more freedom. The prophetic tradition does not jettison or throw aside a this-worldly kind of hope only to be replaced by, by an otherworldly kind of hope. It doesn't do that. The prophet's message was to provoke repentance in the hopes of averting a deadly course of life, a life of rebellion. And this is captured succinctly in the record of the priestly prophet Jeremiah when he pens the, 
these words of God. He writes in his 18th chapter, at one moment, speaking of God, I may declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck it up and break it down and destroy it. But if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will change my mind about the disaster that I intended to bring on it. If we would only change our ways, repent, turn away from the wrong course of action, the prophet's message was hope in this life as well as the life to come. Unlike the prophet whose message was one of hope in this world, the apocalyptic writer gave up on this world. They offered instead a vision of another world that abandoned our agency for change in the here and now. Elizabeth Actemeyer makes this note. Couched in often fantastic and bizarre language to hide their message from the governing authorities, apocalypse writers, and particularly Daniel, are not intended to predict the events that will take place in the future history of our time. Rather, like Daniel, they are intended to encourage the faithful in a time of persecution by showing them the glory in the new age that awaits them beyond history, if they'll only be faithful to the end. So without a doubt, there are times when all we can do is hold out hope for a new day. Yet once again, like the gospel writers, I think it's no accident that the majority of Hebrew literature is expressed in the prophetic sentiment and not in the apocalyptic sentiment. The prophetic vision invites us to new possibilities for life here and now. A prophetic ministry is a ministry that does not wait helplessly for supernatural agencies to arrange the world in such a way that it would be pleasing to us. Rather, a prophetic ministry is active making structural change that ushers in the glory of the Lord. Just imagine how disappointed that apocalyptic writer Daniel must have been when he read the words of that letter that came from that prophetic writer Jeremiah all the way over to Mesopotamia to the exiles. And here were the words of Jeremiah to Daniel. Seek the welfare of the city, God says, where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. While Daniel sees Babylon as a lion at the throat of Israel, Jeremiah sees it as a city whose welfare has God's interest. God is as concerned about Babylon as God is about Jerusalem. God is as concerned about Nineveh as God is about Samaria. And today God is, cares as much about Rome as God cares about New York City. Today God cares as much about Baghdad as God cares about Boston. The call of prophecy is to bring about change with the weapons of love and compassion. So in terms of how we preach and in terms of how we interpret our religious heritage, We must be candid about where we place our emphasis in matters of the social gospel and in matters of the prophetic vision. Lastly, in terms of how to contextualize our theological commitment, 
we ought to emphasize a preferential option to the marginalized over against the elite of society. With the advent, this advent of what is called liberation theologies, we have come to learn that all theology is contextual. There is no a contextual or non-contextual view of God. There is no theory-free way of explaining who the divine is. In other words, there is no God's eye view on God. We cannot get that view on God like we can a cell or an atom or a molecule under a microscope. We don't have that objective position. We are like fish in the ocean trying to describe water when we're trying to describe God. And liberation theologies remind us to be humble and true to our context. Even if there were such a non-contextual perspective on God, it would not be a Christian perspective on the God of Jesus, born in Bethlehem of Judea, reared in Nazareth of Galilee, convicted and executed in Jerusalem. By virtue of our faith in the incarnation, we have learned that humanity no longer has permission to think of God without thinking of God as being human. Furthermore, in the humiliation of the man from Galilee, we're no longer permitted to think of God without thinking of God as one who is wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, without beauty, no form or comeliness that we would desire him, despised, rejected. Jesus made his lot with the poor because he knew that those who oppress the poor insult their maker, but those who are kind to the needy honor him. Jesus understood that to offer ministry to the poor and outcast is to recite God's identity as their maker. In his Olivet Discourse, Jesus made it clear whom it is we encounter when we encounter the poor the hungry, the imprisoned, the thirsty, the naked. We encounter the face of God all over again. Theology must side with the poor. Their view of God must be the privileged view of God. We must start from the underside of society and we must end on the underside of society if we want to meet the face of God. It is my prayer that you join me in sketching out an Adventist vision for global community that is not petty, parochial, myopic, but one that emphasizes the social dimension over the personal dimension of the gospel. One that emphasizes the prophetic interpretation over the, the apocalyptic interpretation of our religious heritage and one that emphasizes a preferential option for the marginalized over the elite of society. To enact this vision, to make this vision a reality, we must do more than sketch it out on paper. We must live it out on Main Street. It is one thing to think globally, but it takes more than thought 
in order to act locally. It's one thing to speak a word of social justice, but it takes more than plain speech to the powers that be in order to act with personal righteousness toward those who are vulnerable to our positions of power. It is one thing to be an agent of change inspired by prophetic hope, yet we know at times we are only able to hold out apocalyptic hope during the hopeless seasons of life. Finally, it is one thing to show preferential treatment to the poor, but it is quite another to push for structural change in those poverty-complicit institutions that we benefit from being connected to. So when we are able to wed our personal holiness with social justice, when we are able to marry our apocalyptic dreams with real prophetic visions, when we are able to link our elite power structures so that we aid marginal poor souls, then in truth, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world with witness to all nations. Do you want to see the end come?